All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Minor League News and Brews. I've been thinking about uh, doing this for a little while here, got caught up on the Arizona Fall League, all kinds of different stuff going on here. But bringing back for the second time, uh, Jack McMullen, he's uh, at jack underscore mcmullen 11 he does great work over there with just baseball media and also with the indianapolis indians jack how you doing today brother all good man i was just telling you before we hit record i've been sleeping a lot since september 24th (laughs) which was the uh, final day of the minor league regular season so game 150 150 was in the books Uh, i got on a flight to go see my brother studying abroad but uh, since I've been back, it's a lot of sleeping until I need to gear up for postseason baseball and then watching a lot of postseason baseball. Yeah, and postseason baseball, Chris and I just talked about it recently. There's been some you know, really good games, uh, really good series. And um, unfortunately, you know, the Baltimore Orioles, that was the team that I was kind of cheering for because they're in, in a similar ilk to the, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, but we're knocked out. I think they'll definitely be back again, though. Yeah, a hundred percent. I uh, I find myself latching on to guys that you know we've been lucky enough to have on on the podcast, or that I've crossed paths with in the minor leagues, and guys that I've just latched onto because I love the way they play. Twenty eighteen, I was out on Cape Cod. I was with the Brewster Whitecaps, and mm-hmm. Bobby Miller just finished his freshman year at Louisville, so that was tough to see Bobby struggle for the Dodgers. But there was a guy in uh, in Falmouth who was leading off and he was from Quebec city and he just finished his freshman year at Auburn. And I was like, who is this Edward Julien guy? And why did he (laughs) never swing the bats? And here I am watching Minnesota and this guy is never swinging the bat. And I love it. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And I forgot to tell you before we, uh, before we jumped on here, I, I was a little bit late getting on because I put myself, I put the Indianapolis, I'm trying the virtual background here with the, 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 uh, the Indianapolis Indians here. I had to figure out when the last time I was there. And unfortunately it was 2019. And Mm -hmm. I just gotta, I gotta correct that at some point in time coming out here. COVID's tough, man. Like the the post COVID world was, was really tough in that regard. And I mean, I know a lot of people that haven't really traveled since 2019. So that is, that's a common year, but I will say, uh, if you can make it happen, um, get out to, to victory field. Cause this place is, uh, it's awesome. And I know that, you know, it's awesome, but, uh, added more stuff. My partner, Howard Kelman on, on the broadcast loves the new taco stand. And, uh, <laughs> I, he, he was doing it. Like, I, I think the first homestand, it was open. We had six games on the homestand. I think he did the tacos for the six days. So really, uh, really impressive concession options there, but I, that ballpark is a crown jewel in the minor leagues. Yeah, and absolutely. And the other thing for me, as you know, everybody knows it's minor league news and brews. I love me some sun King. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, when I was out there in 2019, they did a, a beer specifically for victory field. And I stayed just down and walked to the ballpark. It, it was, it was just a great time down in Indianapolis and, for the Indians this year, I mean, it was kind of like an up and down year, finishing the year about eight games uh, on, they were a uh, 70 and 78, I believe. Um, offensively, I looked, they had an 800 OPS was just above league average, a whip right around 1.483. Also, you know, a little bit better than league average. So it was kind of just like a, an average year in Indianapolis. It was a weird year for the International League. And, you know, you typically see the heightened offensive numbers and the the poor, relatively speaking, pitching numbers in the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, which is the 10 teams out West. And I mean, they are playing 
pretty much in zero gravity, like Albuquerque and Reno, like the ball just flies there in the international league, different story. You know, typically the league average numbers look very similar to what you'll see from the big league level. Like the league average OPS should be in like the 720, 725 range. It was up just shy of 800, like you mentioned this year. And then league wide ERA, it typically should sit in the mid fours it was up to the low fives this year. I think, I think it was like four, nine or five. Um, and, and man walks per nine were up. And that's, that's the big thing that kind of jumps out to me. Overall walk rate was up. And I think everybody's going to point to the ABS, the full ABS system. Um, you know, it, it needs some tinkering. I'm not a fan of the full ABS system. I do like the challenge system, but that zone I think needs to be reworked a little bit. It is very hitter friendly. Yeah, and the other thing is I might go off script here just for a second because I, I did a uh, a thing with uh, Jared Jones looking at the games that he pitched uh, with the ABS system and the ones that he pitched with the regular ump. And he, when he got the regular umps, um, his Ks per nine did not change at all, but I definitely did see the walk rate come up with the ABS. But I, I this is like such a small sample size that you really can't look too much into it. But I just kind of wanted to point that out a little bit. Yeah, so I, I got some pushback on the Just Baseball show, actually, when talking about Zach Wheeler the other night, because Wheeler was getting calls on the corners in Atlanta. He, he totally was, clear as day. Um, I really like that element of baseball. And I'm worried that we're going to lose it. I understand that, hey, 100% accuracy is, accuracy is better than 90% accuracy. But I do enjoy the human element of umpiring. Now, I don't like bad umpiring. I don't think anybody likes bad umpiring. But if you get a Pat Hoberg or somebody like that behind the plate, you know, I can live with the mistakes that they make because humans are malleable. And Jared Jones did a great job of hitting spots this year. And if he knew that a guy's weakness was outside black, he's going to go to the outside black. And this digital zone, if it's a millimeter off the outside quarter, it's a ball. Versus with a human being as an umpire, you can establish credibility and you can get that call. You can earn that call. So I love the idea of earning calls. I think Jared did a great job of earning calls in his weekend starts. But yeah, man, I, I talked to a lot of pitchers and Tuesday through Thursday was was not their happy times <laughs> in the minor league season. Yeah, and we'll see how uh, how quickly that makes it up to the major leagues. But that also does make it tough for guys that number one, the catchers in triple a that are having to adjust. And then once they get to the major leagues and things are completely different and, and pitchers as well, especially guys that are going up and down. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to start was, you know, maybe some of the players that you were possibly surprised that, that didn't get the call up to the major leagues or didn't get uh, more time in the major leagues. I know us as, you know, pirates fans we're we're used to the, I guess it would be Monday morning quarterbacking. We're always, calling for the backup quarterback if the starter doesn't do well. So there was a lot of looking towards um, Indianapolis to try to get some relief, especially during, you know, the months of May, June, and July when the, when the team was really struggling. But is there anybody that really uh, stuck out to you that you were surprised they, they didn't get more of a look in the major leagues? Yeah, I think offensively, the two guys that jumped to my mind are, are Nick Gonzalez and Miguel Andujar for different reasons. 
Gonzalez, I like that he got that, you know, last five day cameo with the Pirates, but I thought that was a couple weeks overdue. Uh, Nick was swinging a crazy good bat and Nick had a transition period at some point in the season. And it could have been during his first big league taste Um, because he got up there and he did not succeed with flying colors. I, I think that he would tell you that. I think that, you know, every Pirates fan would tell you that. But before he went up, he was very pull happy and he was constantly hitting the ball left field line, a lot of times rolling over to third and short. And he showed off the pull side power, but you really didn't see the all fields approach. And then when he came back, he really didn't show the pull side at <laughs> all. He was right center. I'm going to hit liners to the right center field gap and I'm going to hit doubles and triples and opposite field homers. That's what that guy did. And then for the final month of the season, I think he scored like 25 runs in the month of September. He was amazing in September. OPS, maybe a little over 1,200. But Nick, he, he tapped into the pull side field again, and he was going foul pole to foul pole. And he could hit the ball out across the entire perimeter of the outfield. And it was a really impressive final product that we saw from Nick Gonzalez this year. And Andujar, man, I get that he hit a buck 60 up there in his first cameo, but this guy hit 350 this year and he was slugging like nobody else in the league. And he was driving in runs like nobody else in the league. I, I thought when the pirates offense kind of hit a red light and Duhar was the guy to grab, I understand that contractually it might not have made a whole bunch of sense because you do need to DFA him if you were going to send him back to Indy and he needed to clear again, but Man, this guy, it was a treat to watch him for 103 games. Um, for him, I was wishing that number is closer to 70 or 80 than 100. Yeah, and, and you mentioned with Nick, I mean, and the one thing I noticed when he was up here, and, and a lot of people said this, was, you know, a lot of like when he was drafted especially was saying, you know, probably pushing towards <laughs> – second base and, and that could be where he ends up but he actually showed more range uh better ability at shortstop than than a lot of people were including myself were possibly giving him credit for i think so this guy has a better arm than i think a lot of uh outlets were giving him credit for coming into the year and that was the thing that jumped out to me where everything i read whether it was baseball america or pipeline or you know wherever prospectus who's saying, yeah, this guy's a true second baseman. You know, he probably doesn't have the range in the arm to play short. Um, you know, third's going to be a test because of his arm. Like, that's not an average arm. That's an above average arm. And he could move a good bit at shortstop, too. I, I think that this guy can be a hybrid, like a Luis Arias Edmundo Sosa, who can play third, short, and second, and do a pretty good job at all three. Yeah, and the other thing was when he went back down to to Indianapolis this last time, he did, and he was showing that even before he was called up, was was a better con uh, control of the zone, less strikeouts, more walks, and and that's something that he's going to have to do. He is, in my mind, a contact hitter, but is a contact hitter with a little bit more power. So then, with that, you do get a little bit more of that, you know, strikeout. He's built like a tank, man. He, he's a strong <laughs> kid. And yes, like the home run numbers were elevated in college because he was playing in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which you want to talk zero gravity. That place is zero gravity. But uh, I, I think that this guy has some juice. It's not 30 homer juice. I don't even know if it's 20 homer juice, but he can hit 270, 280 with 15 homers if you give him a full 162. 
and I'll take that. Oh, I take take that any day. And the, and the crazy part is you were mentioning with, with, with Andujar, like how well he was playing. Like they actually called him up after he kind of got cold for a couple weeks, which was kind of strange because usually it was like, okay, you know, when, when Palacios was hitting, he got called up, you know, as soon as Nick started hitting, he got called up. And like you said, with Andujar, like it was actually like, it was after he had kind of cooled off a little bit and then he gets called up, but then still hits. Well, I mean, I was at the the one game on the Sunday afternoon where he hit an opposite field off the, uh, the foul pole and the ball was out of the zone. So he like just has like such, you know, amazing range and he can take a pitch that doesn't even look like it's a good pitch and, and just send it a, a mile. He's a, he's a free swinger. I think, you know, there were points where he did show the plate discipline and, and the OBP was great, but that's, partially because the batting average was exceptional, but he is, in my opinion, a free swinger and he can do damage on pitches that nobody should be doing damage on. Um, the best example of that in the big leagues is probably Devers in Boston. That guy can go get an eye high pitch and send it, you know, wrapped around Pesky's pole. And I'm like, you are an alien life form. <laughs> and Duhar isn't at the Devers level, but, um, Nobody's at the Devers level. And in Duhar, he's tapped into that free swinger to maximize who he can be. Um, and man, like, I, I don't know. I don't know how much of it was contractual. I know that he was making 1.3 this year when Palacios and, and Nick, the league minimum is is half that if you're up there for the whole year. So um, I have no idea how much that came into play. I have no idea the fact that you know, you had to DFM and, and hope that he clears with 1.3. Like it, there were, you were almost playing 3d chess with Andujar. I think if you called him up and he didn't succeed again. So I guess they were overly conservative. Um, at least that was maybe the view from Indianapolis, but it was a treat to watch this guy hit. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's going to be a tough decision again, Chris and I on our most recent show, if anybody's listened to it yet, has we talked about, you know, he's, he's looking uh, MLB trade rumors is estimating $2.2 million uh, for him this year. So it's going to be another tough decision, but switching gears to, I mean, I, I hate to use this term and I, and I use it very loosely because as a minor league baseball fan, uh, there aren't too many players that are under the radar. Yeah. But um, just because, I mean, if somebody's performing well enough, then then they'll get their name. But is there some people, because I know we talked, I mean, it's like a Jared Jones. I mean, he's definitely kind of burst onto the scene from, you know, Altoona, then getting the call up to Indianapolis. But was there anybody that was like kind of on the the Indians roster that you were like, man, I, I don't feel like they're getting a, a enough of a push in whether it be in the media or online or, you know, I guess it would be social media or whatever this season. I love the point that you make because you're underrated until you're really good for a year. And then you're a top 100 prospect. That's just how that works. Like coming into the year, Jared Jones was incredibly underrated. And at the midseason update, he was a top 70 prospect in baseball. So I, you, it's almost impossible to be underrated and put up an exceptional year. But I think guys that did fly under the radar, I think a lot of people forget that Ryan Valade's only 24 years old. And I think a lot of people forget that Quinn Priester is only 22 years old and Priester. I'm sure, you know, we're going to talk about him in a minute here, but um, Ryan Valade is a guy that needed to play third base for the first month of the season. And that guy really hadn't played third base since pre COVID. He was drafted as a shortstop by the Rockies and 
Um, you know, he made the move to corner outfield. He, he hops over to third. He does a great job at third. And then for the overwhelming majority of the year, he plays center field at a borderline great level. And this guy hadn't played center field really at all in his professional baseball career. So the fact that that guy was so good defensively and still was a contributing member of the lineup on an everyday basis. I think that guy's a big leaguer and he's 24 years old. He carries himself in a perfect way. I'm, I would struggle to name guys that are, are nicer and more outgoing in the minor leagues that I've met than Ryan Valade. So I'm a big Valade fan, but Priester, that's the other one. He's 22 years old. I understand the concerns. I understand he went up and had a nine ERA in his first eight starts, whatever. This guy came back and was throwing 97 miles an hour and he is so he was so honest when I sat down with him. We had a great conversation on a on the call up, which is just baseball's prospect podcast with Priester. But he's a amazing with the media. B a fascinating and curious individual. He likes space. He likes dinosaurs. He likes cooking steak. <laughs> um, and C he knows how to look at himself in the mirror and, and not be worried about who he is. It's okay. I quote unquote failed at this point. It's not sulking about it. It's how do I get better? And that guy figured out ways to get better. He figured out ways to retain weight and, and sustain velocity and gain it over the course of a season. He was 92 to 93 at the beginning of the year. He was 95 to 96 at the end of the year. And, and that is so commendable. And then the other guy is Kyle Nicholas and Kyle got uh, his late audition at the big league level at the end of the year. Obviously, the debut, you know, Canario is going to Canario and the Cubs are going to Cubs <laughs> at Wrigley Field. But uh, Kyle, I mean, he was he was totally honest. He said, you know, things just weren't working in the rotation. So, you know, they went back to the drawing board. They threw him in the bullpen and it was a two inning relief guy. And then it was a one inning relief guy. And, you know, 96 consistently turned into 98. And that slider turned into a demonic breaking ball. And uh, he was a blast to watch, too. Yeah. And with, with Kyle, I mean, that's the thing is, I mean, he didn't switch to, to the bullpen until a little bit later on. It wasn't like, you know, a Carmen Majinski who, you know, it was decided at the beginning of the season and he had a little bit more time to, to work on fitting into that role because that is, it's different preparation. It's different outlooks. It's, it's, you know, instead of gearing yourself up for, you know, the start of a game, you're kind of gearing yourself up at different points during the game. I've talked to some, you know, different bullpen guys that were starters previously. And it's like, you have to be, kind of engaged like the entire time and you're not knowing when you're going to get the call. So it's, it's a def, it's a different like training. It's different. It's different preparation. It's different, you know, off days, it's different, everything. And Kyle loved it. He loved that aspect of it. And I said, what has changed mentally? And he said, I'm not like, I, I can dumb it down to a certain degree and I can have intent with every pitch, when I was starting games and I wasn't, you know, throwing to the best of my abilities, it was, you know, like, okay, I need to pace myself over four or five innings. Like I need to save something against this guy because I'm going to see him again in a half hour or in 45 minutes versus out of the pen. He said, I could have full intent with every pitch and I'm pitching to my strengths. I'm not necessarily trying to, play chess with a guy's weaknesses and somehow thread my strengths in there. Um, he was saying like, 
listen, I throw 99. I've got a great slider. Let me do that in a one, two, three inning. And and he did that in a lot of one, two, three innings. And uh, I asked him after his first couple of relief appearances where it was, you know, amazing. It was like, you know, nine up, nine down on his first three, like true one inning relief appearances. And I said, how you feel, dude? He said, effing great. <laughs> I'm like, okay, there we go. That's exactly what I want to hear from a reliever. Yeah, and he, he definitely made the adjustment well. But I'm um, going back to Quinn a little bit and just kind of like maybe lumping Quinn, Rowanzi, and and Luis Ortiz. I, I, I Definitely all different types of pitchers, but yeah. also ones that experience their own struggles. Um, what would you say, like, for people, like, everybody's worried about, you know, Luis, Rowanzi, Quinn, and, and none of them are – very old. I know that Rowanzi falls more on the old, like con- kind of control and baseball side with options and different stuff. But what's kind of like the outlook going into at the end of this season and going into next season for like that? Cause those three guys are very important to the major league rotation. Yeah. They're super important. They probably, you know, kind of aid in deciding who you go after in free agency too, because you know that Keller and Oviedo are there, but Brubaker's likely to miss pretty much the entirety of the year. Burroughs is probably going to miss the entirety of the year, if not the overwhelming majority. So um, yeah, I think those three, it's three different conversations and I'll walk through those three quickly. Priester I do think it's just a matter of him gaining confidence that he can get outs at the major league level and he can do it over six innings. Cause we saw that guy do it. He was, uh, he was an IL all-star this year. He is so good at vetting himself. Like I was saying, he can look at himself in the mirror. He can identify weaknesses and he can attack them. Um, he mentioned he's going to Cressy, Eric Cressy in uh, South Florida this off season. I think that that guy is going to unlock something physically that will allow him to sit in the mid nineties and possibly flirt with the high nineties again. And that's a totally different beast with him. And obviously he was tinkering with his pitch mix. This guy was a four seam guy before this year, this year, he really turned into a sinker guy. I think that curveball is exceptional. If he can find a sinker, he was working on cutting his four seam fastball. So a sinker, a cutter, and have that good slider and have that great curveball. I think that this guy can have a four pitch mix there that can get outs over six innings at the major league level. Mm-hmm. Rowe, it didn't feel like he was entirely right. I and I'm sure that you guys kind of got that. I don't know if it was a confidence thing. I don't know if it was an arm thing, but 96, 97 turned into 93, 94, and that just doesn't play the way that we know Rowe can play. So. I'm hoping that Rowanzi comes back to Bradenton next spring and he's throwing 96, 97, and we can kind of throw this year out the window. And, you know, I was kind of thinking about it in the Mackenzie Gore lens. You remember when Gore was supposed to be the end all be all in 21 for San Diego? Yeah. You know, 20, he was at the alt site and Ryan Weathers debuted before him and, and Patino debuted before him. And it was like, Hmm, where's Gore? And 2021 was just a lost year, but 2022, he comes out and looks like the rookie of the year front runner at the all-star break. So I'm hoping that this was just a weird throwaway year for Roe and Ortiz kind of same thing as Rowanzi where 
you know, a hundred turned into 95 and that's not going to play. Like we know Luis Ortiz can play. So I'm hoping that it's elevated velocity from Contreras and Ortiz and Priester. I think it's just hammering in the pitch mix that he wants. Yeah. And I mean, I, I did kind of like a little bit of a breakdown and, and was curious as to, you know, with Ortiz and especially with Rowanzi, the amount they were using their change up a pitch, they really didn't have a lot of experience with yeah. if it was just kind of getting used to that and doing it now when they're young, instead of like introducing it later on, it, it was just because they said a lot of stuff for, for Ronzi was mechanical and there was no injury, but then he was put on the aisle with a shoulder and it was just like a very strange year for him. And especially me, I was just like, okay, we got, we got Keller, we got Rowanzi, you know, hopefully Ortiz and Oviedo can do something. And then, I mean, even from the beginning, I think I was a game out in St. Louis early on in the year. And I just, just was like Rowanzi. It's like, he was like losing control of his slider, which is one of the pitches that he always had the most control of. And it was just a, a very strange season for him. Really strange. His slider did, you know, perform well over the course of his big league, you know, season. Like you look at Savant, the slider was good, but the fastball was not good. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of that has to do with command, but man, again, 97 and 93 are two totally different beasts. So yeah. I, I trust 97 more than 93, regardless of shape. All right, Jack, I could talk to you forever here, but before I let you go, we, uh, we were jumping, jumping on here and we were talking about Ruben Gotai. And and yeah. the big thing with him is that when it was reported that he was let go, a lot of people were talking about him being still being the hitting coach of uh high a uh, Greensboro. But I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was the bench coach at Indianapolis. Yeah. Ruben was the bench coach in Indy all year. Um, I, I know what you mentioned, Dallas McPherson was originally supposed to be the bench coach in Indy. Yeah. I never met Dallas in Indy, um, but Ruben was here in Indy. Ruben's a great guy. And, uh, you know, I, I have I have zero information. Um, I don't want to guess at all as to why they let Ruben go and John Nunnally go. But um, I will say, talking to players, I know that they loved working with John Nunnally. Um, and Ruben, Ruben and Miguel Perez, the Indians manager were like that. They were, they were so tight. And, uh, obviously the players in Indy loved working with Ruben. So, um, hoping for the best for him and, and hoping he lands with another organization. Cause that guy is, uh, he, he's a good coach, man. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it was just weird to me because that's what was being reported. So just kind of wanted to clear that up for everybody. And like you said, hopefully, because I mean, I thought that things were uh, were definitely looking up for him with the, the promotion stuff, but best of luck to him. And uh, Jack, definitely going to be listening to your stuff over at Just Baseball Media. Um, also looking forward, I'm always, I always look forward to when minor league season starts up again with the Indianapolis Indians. But for you that don't, uh, please go follow Jack McMullen um, at Jack underscore McMullen 11. Thanks a lot for jumping on, brother, and can't wait to talk some baseball with you again. Of course, anytime, my man. I don't know if it's the season and it getting a little bit colder, but I mean, on these beer reviews, I've been doing a ton of Oktoberfests and this isn't going to change this time because 
for some reason I stopped by the local giant Eagle and, and hopped in there and they had about 20 different Oktoberfests. Um, so I picked up all of those have obviously not drank all of those just yet. Um, Cause Oktoberfests are a little bit higher in the alcohol content, usually around like 6% to uh, 6.5%, sometimes a little bit higher, but um, have had uh, at least four of those from the 20 that I picked up to do this beer review. The first one is Sierra Nevada coming in at 6%. Uh, like I said, I always like when they spell the Oktoberfest with the K, it always makes me feel better. There are a couple that spell it with the CT, but always going to have a good Oktoberfest when it's spelled with the K. Uh, I gave this one a 450 on the weighted based on batting average. Bring that down to 400. Uh, the next one is from Sly Fox. If anybody hasn't been out to the High Line in Pittsburgh to check out Sly Fox, they got a great location over there. Very private um, on the south side of Pittsburgh. This one coming at 6.1%. Give it a 425. Bring that down to 375. The next one isn't really an Oktoberfest, and it was kind of weird for me to drink it in between the Oktoberfest, so maybe that's why I gave it a little bit lower of a score. Um, this one would be the Southern Tier Harvest Autumn IPA. It was weird to have an Autumn IPA in between all the Oktoberfests. Give that one a 375, bring it down to 325, but if maybe if, you, if I drank that one first, it will be a little bit different. And this one, because we were covering the Indians this week, went out to Munster in Indiana for three Floyds, the Munster Fest, 6.2 Oktoberfest. This was the best one. Uh, this one I give a 475, bring it down to 425. And then hopefully next week, guys, coming at you with some Altoona Curve Baseball covering all of the minor leagues, even through the offseason.